open your Bibles up with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and if you're going to use one of those Bibles that's in front of you, you will find that on page 1026. Matthew chapter 2, you will find that on page 1026. And Christmas is here again. There is so much to love about this time of year, setting up our little nativity scenes in our house. Some of you go all out and you get huge nativity scenes and you put them out on your front yard. That's also pretty cool. Some of us uh, are out there putting uh, up and decorating our Christmas trees, plugging in the Christmas lights that you, if you are anything like me, haven't actually taken down all year. We're opening presents, we're giving presents, we're seeing family and friends, we're enjoying turkey dinners. Who doesn't love a good turkey dinner? We're singing our Christmas carols, we're doing our Christmas plays, and we get extra church services. I love extra church services, and we're doing parades, and I hear that we won the the grand prize in our parade this year. There is so much about this season that is just so wonderful, it's so beautiful, and I am sure that if the, the Apostle Matthew, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, were here, he would enjoy some of these things too. But Matthew would have kept the main thing the main thing. You see, I want you this morning to put all of your moaning and all of your groaning and all of your complaining and everything aside. We are complaining about how busy we are at this time of year. We're complaining that some people are missing the meaning of the season, that it's being commercialized. There's so much complaining. And all of it takes our mind off the main thing. Don't let the world distract you. Matthew didn't. And when you read the first two chapters of the book of Matthew, you see Matthew saying, praise God. Block everything else out. Put blinders on if you need to this morning. Don't let anything distract you. Just look at Jesus this morning. Look at Jesus, only Jesus. You see, in Matthew chapter 1, last week, we could almost feel the Apostle Matthew's excitement. And all he did was list a list of names. Something as mundane as a list of names, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was for Matthew an exciting, beautiful, wonderful thing. He said to us last week that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And it is in Jesus that all of the promises that God made to Israel thousands of years ago have found their fulfillment. Praise God. And he started last week to move into, in, chapters, in ver- chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, he started to move into the fact that not only is Jesus the fulfillment of promises that God made to Israel thousands of years ago, but Jesus is also the fulfillment of numerous prophecies in the Old Testament about the one who was to come. And you see in chap- verse 18 to 25, he quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 23, and he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew goes back to the prophet Isaiah and says, Isaiah prophesied the coming of this man. Now Isaiah spoke 800 years before Jesus actually came. That's, pretty, that's a pretty good prophecy. 
He predicted that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Now, it doesn't end there, however. As we come to Matthew chapter 2, we see that it is abundantly clear that Jesus is the one that the entire Old Testament of your Bibles points to. And in Jesus, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled. So I want us to walk through this morning Matthew chapter 2. So open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to focus right now on the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, okay? We'll move through the whole chapter, but we're going to start here at the, verse, the first 12 verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, or the Messiah, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So you see, Jesus here is born in a little town called Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. Now, if you know anything about this man, Herod, he is a cruel, he was a cruel man. And under his reign, under his leadership, the blood of his own people flowed freely He was a tyrant who resorted to violence at the smallest sign of threat to his rule. This guy had his own wife killed, his favorite wife. He had multiple wives, but he took his favorite wife and had her killed. And then he had his two sons killed along with her. And when he was on his own deathbed, he knew that the people of Israel weren't going to cry over him. So he took all of the best people in Israel, put them in a prison cell and said, when I die, they die ensuring that there would be tears flowing in Israel on the day of his death. This is the type of man that Herod was. Caesar Augustus said, it is safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of Herod's sons. This is the type of man who ruled over Judea, who ruled over Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. If you recall, Esau is the line that God chose not to use to bring the Savior. Esau was the line that God chose not to use to be the one that brings about the promise. And so, a group of Jewish peoples 
the group of Jewish peoples had a long and checkered history with this line, with this group of people, the Edomites. And not only was he not Jewish, leading the Jewish people, but he was a Roman appointee. And the Jews didn't really appreciate Rome at this moment, did they? Rome was, a, was an overlord. Rome was in a group that made sure that they kept the Israelite peoples oppressed. And so Herod is actually vulnerable to claims of a Jewish king from the line of David. And so this announcement that Jesus has been born, this announcement that the wise men bring to him that an heir has been born, that a king has been born in the city of Bethlehem is actually a political threat to him. Herod, the wicked and unworthy king, Matthew is contrasting him with the true, worthy, and prophesied king of Israel, Jesus Christ. And did you notice the news of the king? It's brought by wise men, by magi, by astrologers from the east. Now, I like the song, The First Noel, but if you listen to the Christmas songs that we sing, you'll notice that a lot of them are highly inaccurate. It says in the song, They looked up and saw a star shining in the east beyond them far. These are men from the east. So the star isn't shining in the east. If you look at the text, it says wise men from the east. It's not the star, okay? The star is actually shining in the west. And there's a big theological point to this. It's important. Now, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis... When God created the Garden of Eden and he put Adam and Eve in this garden and everything was perfect, relationship with God was perfect, God dwelt in the midst of the people, everything changed when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And when God banished them from the garden, what direction did he send them in? Do you know? Sent them east. And if you read the book of Genesis, you will see that it's at the east that God places the angel with the sword, blocking the way back into the Garden of Eden. It's east that God sends Cain away from the presence of the Lord, the text says. It's east that everything moves. And east in the book of Genesis is a subtle hint that as humanity moves further and further away from God, their progression is east. So when you see that in the book of Genesis, what the writer is trying to tell you is east is away from the presence of the Lord. And now, while Matthew doesn't explicitly state it, he says, wise men from the east see a star in the sky that leads them west. What's the theological purpose for that? Remember what Matthew says about Jesus in Chapter 1, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God dwells with us once again. And so the fact that the wise men are moving west at the coming of Jesus means that God dwells with us again in the person of Jesus Christ. And once again, we can be in relationship with God in a way that we have not been able to be in relationship with God for thousands and thousands of years we can, once again, be in right relationship with God through faith in King Jesus. And this movement westward is a theological way of Matthew saying, God is with us once again. We're no longer having to move east constantly away from the presence of the Lord. Humanity, guys, if you hear this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you can move westward into the presence of the Lord. He dwells with us once again. That's just one song. 
You can keep going. Because we honestly don't know how many wise men there were. We don't know their names, and we have a tendency to fill in the blanks with tradition. But we can see that these guys have some familiarity with the Jewish scriptures, right? They say that there is a star. We have seen his star. Now, these guys are probably from Babylon. And if you recall, a couple hundred years, 450 years, whatever, however many years earlier, uh, the Babylonians invaded Israel, took Israel captive, and led them into Babylon. And not every single pocket of Judaism or Jewish peoples came back into Jerusalem when the time came. And so, there were pockets of Jews throughout the East, and these wise men would have had access to them and would have had access to their scriptures. So they see his star when it rose. Now, where do they get that? Where do they get this idea that there is a star that rose and they could follow that star all the way to the Messiah? It comes from Numbers chapter 24. The Moabites hired this man named Balaam. Everybody remember that name, Balaam? A prophet who hated Israel. Because the Moabites were afraid of Israel. They wanted to move Israel from the land that they were in, and they wanted to take that land for themselves. And so they hire Balaam, and they say, Listen, Balaam, prophesy curses on these Israelites. And so Balaam opens his mouth and starts trying to prophesy curses. And what comes out of his mouth? Blessings. Why? Because God wouldn't let him curse the Israelites. And every time Balaam kept opening his mouth, he kept witnessing giving them a blessing. And finally, the king of Moab is like, just be quiet. I hired you to curse these guys, not to bless them. And in his final oracle or his final prophecy, he says this. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And listen to this. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And here it is. The star is in the sky. The scepter has arisen. Balaam's oracle is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so the wise men, they come to worship the king of the Jews. And in their coming is also another prophecy fulfilled. So Matthew's got some explicit prophecies that are being fulfilled, but he's also got some allusions to prophecies being fulfilled. In Isaiah 60 verse 3, he prophesies this, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now remember, where are these wise men from again? The east from Babylon. And so what do they represent? The nations. And at the birth of this child, the nations come to the light of Jesus Christ, to the brightness of his rising. Isaiah's prophecy was that nations would come to the light of God's son, Israel. That's the original context of this text. And here Matthew tells of peoples from the nations coming to the light of God's son, Jesus Christ. But while the wise men had enough knowledge to follow the star of the Jewish king to him, they hadn't understood the location of the king's birth. So they head to Jerusalem. Why would they go to Jerusalem? 
The assumption is that if a king is going to be born anywhere, it'll be in the place where power rules. So they go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where all of the politicians are. Jerusalem is the place where the king lives. Jerusalem is the place where all of the decisions are made. So if you're a wise man and you're looking for a king, you go to Jerusalem. But God doesn't do things the way that the wise men expect them to. God doesn't do things the way that we expect him to. The king of the Jews will not be born in Jerusalem. The scriptures have actually foretold the place of the birth of the king, a humble town, not a center of power. God chose the little inconsequential town of Bethlehem to be the place where his savior, his Messiah, the one he sends to us would be born. And he foretold it through the prophet Micah. You see that in our text here in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now do you know how long before the fulfillment of this text happens, do you know what the the length of time between writing and fulfillment is? 800 years. It's pretty good. Micah was a prophet who lived 800 years before Christ. And he warned Israel, he warned Judah of God's impending judgment upon them for their continuing idolatry and their continuing disobedience to his commands. And as prophets usually did, however, in the light of God's judgment, they also prophesied long-term blessing. He tells them of God's long-range plans that while God will punish you for your disobedience, while God will carry you away for your disobedience, there would come a time when God would send a shepherd that would shepherd his people because God is gracious. God is merciful. God will not let punishment be the final word for his people. So Micah prophesies birth in Bethlehem. This prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, the ruler who is born in Bethlehem. Now, if you look at the text as well, he says that this ruler will be a shepherd to my people Israel. Here is again another contrast with Herod. Herod is a tyrant. But God is sending a shepherd. And Jesus recalls this prophetic word in John chapter 10. Do you remember in John chapter 10, the title that Jesus applies to himself? I am the good shepherd. I'm not a tyrant who goes and takes your life from you. I am a, ty- I am a, I am a shepherd who gives his life for you. I lay down my life For you, so that you can live. I'm different than all of the kings and all of the shepherds that you have ever encountered in your life. Jesus is the one who leads his people on the path to life. The only one who leads his people on the path to life. So, Herod summons the chief priests and the scribes and he asks them. Where is the Messiah going to be born? They tell him Bethlehem. And so then he secretly, I don't know if you saw that in the text, he secretly summons the wise men. Why secretly? Because he doesn't want the people of Jerusalem to start feeling like there is a legitimate heir that is a claimant or a rival to his throne. So he does this all secretly. 
Remember, Herod is a fear-filled tyrant who will do whatever it takes to maintain his grip on power. And the people know this, which is why Jerusalem is troubled along with him. They have felt his wrath before. The word troubled here means stirred up, unsettled. They're agitated by the news. They fear what Herod might do to eliminate a rival claimant to the throne. And so he lies to the wise men because later on in the text we realize that he's want, he wants to kill this Messiah. He doesn't want to go worship him. He wants to kill him. He is plotting to kill the king. He is plotting to kill Jesus because Jesus is a threat to worldly power. The shepherd king who leads his people back to God, who by his sacrifice leads his sheep to green pastures, who leads his sheep to abundant life, who gives to his sheep amazing grace, the son of David, born in Bethlehem, the city of David, who will rule like David, although infinitely greater, is here, and it threatens Herod, the tyrant. And that the wise men traveled so far to meet him shows that now the king that commands the allegiance of the entire world has arrived. Now notice, I don't know if you noticed this as well, the wise men, they go on their way to go and find the Messiah, to go and find the king. But do you know who doesn't go with him? Nobody goes with him. No Jew goes with him. There was no excitement in this meeting. There was no wonder from any of them. Here they were, an entire nation of people groaning for a Messiah for centuries, and these wise men arrive on their doorstep announcing his birth, and nobody moves an inch. In fact, Herod wants to find this child and kill him, and nobody calls him on it. The arrival of this king conflicts with Herod's ambition, conflicts with Herod's pride, conflicts with Herod's grip on power, and Herod's tyranny will be put on full display when he attempts to extinguish the light of the world. And this star goes before the wise men and brings them to the place where Jesus was, to the house that Jesus lived in. Now, I know we love our nativity scenes, but uh, the wise men weren't there on the night of Jesus' birth, just so we know, just so we're clear. You see that Jesus is in the house now, and the word here is child, not infant, okay? They see this son, they go into the house, and they joyfully bow down before him and worship, and they open their treasures, and they give him treasures that are fit for a king. I mean, nobody's ever given me gold. Nobody's ever given me frankincense. Nobody's ever given me myrrh. You know why? I'm no king. Jesus deserves these things. And then they left for home after worshiping him. Not returning to tell Herod that they had found him, which leads to the fulfillment of another prophecy. So prophecy number one, 800 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Micah predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. He is born in Bethlehem. Check. Now we go to verses 13 to 15. We see a second prophecy fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Now when they had departed, behold, 
an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So this one's a little bit different. It's a little bit trickier. Because there are different types of fulfillments of what the Lord has spoken in the Old Testament. We just went through Isaiah, the virgin shall conceive. We just learned about Micah, that the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And now you've got uh, Matthew quoting Hosea, the prophet Hosea. And he says uh, that it, this fulfills the, prophets, the, the words that were spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. But contextually, Hosea isn't looking forward to Jesus. Hosea is looking backwards to Israel. Israel is what, who, who Hosea is actually talking about here. Israel was called God's son in this text. Israel was the son that God loved with a steadfast love. A son that God brought into Egypt to protect him from the starvation that had arisen because a famine had struck the land. And while in Egypt, they, Israel grew, Israel multiplied, and eventually the Egyptians took the Jews and they forced them into slavery. Harsh slavery. And the Israelites groaned, the Jews groaned to God and said, please help us. And so God rose up Moses and used Moses to deliver his people from their oppression in Egypt. God called his son, Israel, out of Egypt. So this is, this is the context that God preserved his son, Israel, in Egypt and called his son, Israel, out of Egypt to be his treasured possession, to be a light to the Gentiles, helping Gentiles, which is everybody in this room who is not Jewish, see the glory of the God of Israel. But Israel failed to be the light that God had called them to be. Instead, choosing to live disobedient and idolatrous lives. So what does God do? He sends his greater son, his true son, his unique one-of-a-kind son, the son who would be everything Israel was supposed to be and more, the son who would succeed where Israel failed. And so what we see happening here is that there are patterns, patterns in the life of Israel that foreshadow the ultimate pattern that we would see in the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So in Israel, you have these experiences that point forward to the unique Son of God. So Israel being called into Egypt is a pattern that points forward to the ultimate Son of God, Jesus Christ, being called out of Egypt. So it's not a predictive prophecy. It's the fulfillment of a pattern that God has brought his son Israel through and which is ultimately fulfilled in his unique son, Jesus Christ. We can see this because Jesus is the one who succeeds where Israel failed. For example, when Israel was in the wilderness, they were tempted over and over and over to idolatry. And they failed 
over and over and over again. And then God's son Jesus is born into the world. And guess where he goes right at the beginning of his ministry? Into the wilderness. For what reason? To be tempted. And how does he respond? He passes the tests with flying colors. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. The pattern in the life of Israel was fulfilled in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. So God preserved his greater son, Jesus, in Egypt from being slaughtered by Herod and eventually called him out of Egypt not to be the light to the Gentiles, but to be the light of the world. God is enacting a new exodus in his greater son. God will, through his son Jesus, save his people from their sins. He will liberate anyone who believes in him. He will free any and all who have faith in him from oppression of sin, from bondage to sin, from enslavement to sin. Did you know that the, the most foul thing in all of existence is sin? And to God, sin deserves damnation. Sin damns the souls of everyone who commits it. And sin gets in the way of any relationship that you could ever hope to have with God. But God has created a way to be free of the penalty of damnation. God has created a way to have life and life to the full, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ, the one whom he called up out of Egypt. And Joseph, upon hearing of Herod's intentions from the angel, fled to Bethlehem and went to Egypt. Now, you've got to give Joseph some credit. This guy loves his family. I mean, he, as soon as he hears a dream, or as soon as he has a dream, he gets up, he obeys, and he runs. He is a good man. He is just. He is obedient. So, two prophecies fulfilled. One, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Check. Two, the Messiah would be called out of Egypt. Check. Matthew continues in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the, hip, the hypocrisy of tyrants. Herod is the one trying to trick the wise men. And he gets upset by what he thinks is a trick on their part because they didn't return. In his depraved mind, he thinks, they tricked me. They didn't trick him. They obeyed God's call to not go back that way. So he sends and kills all the male children, two years old and under, in the town of Bethlehem. Now where is this in our manger scene? Where is this event in our Christian sentiment over the time of Christmas? Why do we so often overlook the horror of Herod's cruelty here? Because Christmas for us is something we want to feel, we want to feel good at this time of year. 
We want to just talk about the manger and the cows and, and the, the bowing sheep and, and all of these nice things. And we want to talk about brotherly love. But Matthew really wants us to see the kind of world that Jesus is born into here. Jesus is born into a world not of merry gentlemen. Jesus is born into a world where children are murdered by tyrants. Jesus is born into a world where children continue to be killed by the tyranny of self-centeredness. Jesus is born into a world full of sin and full of darkness and full of evil and full of pain and full of sorrow. This is the world Jesus has been born into. Not our manger scene world. The world where a man has two-year-old and under children killed to feed his own ego. This is the world we live in. Jesus has been born into, and he is the opposite. Jesus is the alternative. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the love in a world that is controlled by people like Herod. And this cruel and murderous rampage of Herod's fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah 31 in chapter 31, verse 15. Now again, this is not a predictive prophecy. This also is the fulfillment of a pattern. See, when Jeremiah wrote centuries earlier, he was writing of the grief that he witnessed in the world that he lived in. And what was this grief that he witnessed? He watched as Jewish mothers wept after the Babylonians had conquered their land and taken their sons and ushered them out of the city. The Babylonians took the sons of the Jewish mothers and conscripted them into their armies and sent them off into battle. The Babylonian overlords executed sons in front of their mothers. The Babylonian overlords forcibly moved from Jerusalem all the males. They loaded them up on caravans. They sold them into slavery. They scattered them throughout the empire. And listen, they don't have cell phones then. They can't call up and say, son, where are you? Well, I'm on the corner of Bleecker Street and Smith Street. You just can't do that. When you are in an empire the size of Babylon and you don't have a central base of operations from which to work and the overlords take you and scatter your entire family in different directions, you'll never see them again. Families were torn apart. And Ramah, was a town along the road that the captives took out took the the captives took out of Jerusalem and on the road from Ramah was the place where Rachel one of the founding mothers of Israel was buried you remember that back in Genesis Rachel is one of the mothers that had the, the sons that would populate Israel as a nation And so you've got captive sons of Israel filing past the gravesite of Rachel. And Jeremiah personifies the grieving mothers in Jerusalem by attributing to them the name Rachel. The death of Israel's sons is now happening again. On the same road that connects Bethlehem and Ramah, The sons of Israel are murdered by the tyrant Herod. And once again, Rachel, the personification of mothers in Israel, weeps over the death of her sons because they are no more. But the story of Jeremiah doesn't end there. 
Again, there is a long-range plan. The cruel world that Jesus is born into, it will be changed as a result of his arrival. Mourning will eventually be turned into joy. And the days are coming when God will write his law on his people's heart. He will forgive the iniquity and sins of his people and he will remember them no more. There is hope in the midst of darkness thanks to the child that God has given us. And in here as well, you start to begin to see the fulfillment of mosaic patterns and prophecies. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, you see Moses prophesy this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And then God says, in confirmation of what Moses said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it from him. Now that phrase, I myself will require it from him, that should terrify you. Matthew presents Jesus as this prophet, the one called out of Egypt, who, like Moses, is saved from the slaughter of children committed by evil leaders. The whole Exodus event where God pulled his people out of Egypt and led them through the Red Sea into the land of promise is a pattern that is fulfilled in Christ, who leads his people not out of physical bondage in Egypt, but out of spiritual bondage to slavery and enslavement to sin. And Jesus will do this by the cross. It is at the cross when Jesus dies where we can have freedom from slavery to sin. We can have freedom from the repercussions, the eternal repercussions of sin. So we see that the child will be born in Bethlehem. We see that the child... Yes, good. Who, just, who said check? All right, good job. I was hoping somebody would, but nobody caught on to it. The child will be called out of Egypt. Three, Rachel will weep for her children. Now Matthew continues, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So now Joseph brings the family back to Israel. But they won't go to Judea for fear of Archelaus. Now we thought Herod was bad. Archelaus is worse. 
He's crueler than his father. He's more tyrannical than his father. So Joseph goes and lives in Nazareth. And Matthew says this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. Now, there is only one problem with this. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. The word Nazareth never occurs in the Old Testament. So what is Matthew trying to say here? What is Matthew trying to tell us is fulfilled? Well, what do we know about Nazareth? In John chapter 1, we see that Nazareth has quite a terrible reputation. In verse, John chapter 1, verse 45 and 46, we read this. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a hole of a town with a terrible reputation. In Jesus' day, to be called a Nazarene was a derogatory term. It would be like someone calling you a redneck or something. Something you don't want to be called. That Jesus lived in Nazareth isn't the prophetic fulfillment in and of itself. But his association with Nazareth is characteristic of the Old Testament's portrayal of the lowly state into which the Messiah would be born. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 53. Again, 800 years previous. Isaiah says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Meaning, Unless this is revealed to you, you will not be able to believe what I am going to do with my Messiah. He's not going to be what you expect. He's not going to be this powerful person who rises up to political leadership. He's not going to be that type of person. That's the way the world hopes things work. Everybody wants power. Everybody wants prestige. But my Messiah, the one that I am sending, is going to model for you humility, model for you grace, model for you love, model for you all of these characteristics. It says, goes on, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So Isaiah, 800 years before the Messiah arrives, tells his readers that the coming Messiah would be rejected. The coming Messiah would be despised. The coming Messiah would be a man of sorrows, one from whom people hide their faces. Being called a Nazarene contributes to the fulfillment of the, those prophecies. It is a fulfillment of the rejection texts of the Messiah. 
This title would actually also be later applied to believers as an insult as well. In Acts chapter 24, verse 5, we read that the, uh, the city leaders bringing Paul in front of, the, in front of the, the courts says, we have found that this man, Paul, is a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You can just probably hear the, the sarcasm dripping from the tongues of the people that are accusing Paul as they say that word. This, this man is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. I mean, of all things to be the ringleader of, Nazarenes? But Matthew wants you to see that the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the prophetic movements and patterns of the Old Testament all find their fulfillment in the babe, Jesus Christ. The one whom God sent. Jesus is the one the entirety of the Old Testament points to. He is the one who fulfills the numerous prophecies of which Matthew shows. Born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, the weeping of Rachel, and he will be of low estate. All of these converge in Jesus Christ. But why? I guess after all of that, the question would be why? Why did this child come? What did he come to do? Who is he? Why would God send him? This child, Jesus Christ, is God come in the, in the flesh. This child, Jesus Christ, is the one who has come to save his people. You see, sin is a real thing. It actually exists. And try as we might, we can, we can put it behind us or we can think we can try to eliminate it from our thoughts. We can try to keep it from ever rising up in us. But sin is a real thing. You say to yourself, well, okay, sin is a real thing, but what does that mean? Sin is an offense to God. And because God is so supremely holy... And because we are all infected and stained with sin, none of us can have any sort of right or positive relationship with God until that sin is dealt with. Because his holiness would absolutely tear every single one of us apart. His holiness would descend upon us and destroy us. But not only that, not only is sin dangerous and an affront to the holiness of God, but it actually offends God as well. And so there is this passiveness to it where it will destroy us if we try to enter into the presence of God at the end. But there is also this idea or this truth that God is coming back. And when God comes back, all of the sin that we still have on us, God will judge and God will punish. But God doesn't want that to be the final word. God doesn't want you to perish. God doesn't want you to die. 
God knows that you are in desperate need of forgiveness. God knows that you are someone who needs your sins removed from you so that you can be in right relationship with him. Because mark my words and know this clearly, you can have no positive relationship with God at all if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And the forgiveness we so desperately need is brought to us by this child. This child that God sent into the world. Jesus Christ, who would later, at 33 years old, go to the cross. And there, when he hung on that cross, God poured his wrath on Jesus Christ. And on Jesus Christ, God dealt with the sin of everyone who believes in him. But not only does God deal with the sin of everybody who believes in Jesus Christ at the cross while Jesus is there, but Jesus, remember, lived a perfect life. And so there is this trade that takes place. Your sin goes on to the shoulders of Jesus Christ. The perfect life of Jesus Christ then gets applied to you. And so now when God looks at you from the heavenlies, upon faith in Jesus Christ, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to you and you are forgiven. If you believe, if you trust, if you put your faith in Christ, mark my words, you will be forgiven. If you believe and you trust in Jesus Christ, mark my words, you will spend eternity with God in heaven. Jesus is the long-awaited, the long-promised, the long-prophesied Savior of Israel and the world. Jesus is God come to us in the flesh to take on himself all of the sins of all who believe. Jesus is the one born in a manger who came to die in your place to pay the price required of you for your sin. Thanks be to God for his wonderful gift, Jesus Christ. Father, we give you praise this morning and we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who never leaves Punishment is the final word. And we thank you that you have opened up a path, you've opened up a way whereby anyone who believes in you can be moved from the camp of punishment and the camp of eternal damnation and the camp of hell into the camp of life and into the camp of joy and into the camp of abundance. And we thank you that you did all of this through Jesus Christ, the great gift of God to mankind. Father, we praise you this morning. We pray that you would help us to truly think upon these things. To truly focus like Matthew wants us to focus on 